together with her husband, but still she was at an age when uh, it was difficult to presume that she would get child and that she was supposed to be barren. That is why the birth of John the Baptist was in itself a little bit of a miracle. And uh, John the Baptist and Jesus were born like six months away from each other. If you want to take astrologically, we celebrate today the birthday of Jesus on the 25th of December, which would make Jesus a Capricorn. And the birthday of John the Baptist is somewhere in June, around the 20th, 20-something of June, which would make him a Cancerian astrologically. Therefore, there was a six-month difference between these two, and moreover, they were actually cousins. John the Baptist and Jesus were therefore cousins, as you call today, second-degree cousins, because their mothers were first-degree cousins. And this John the Baptist uh, seems to be the one which gives a kickstart. He is the one who appears. And this fulfills an image from the prophecies of yore. You will see immediately there is a prophecy related with this. And the John the Baptist is actually the one who brings a lot of innovative ideas. That has uh, prompted some uh, people, some theologians, analysts of religion to believe in a certain way that John the Baptist is a kind of guru of Jesus. In the light of what I told you yesterday, this is both significant and non-significant, because an avatar, a divine spirit, such as that of Jesus, doesn't really need a guru. But on the other hand, of course, when somebody picks up knowledge, when somebody picks up spirituality, of course they pick up spirituality from other persons, from books, from whatever. So fact is that uh, indeed there may have been a connection. And the many people of today, they try to speculate on the fact if Jesus was a member of the cult of the Essenians, uh, those people who are supposed to have lodged and uh, written things such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there is a lot of speculation, and we must admit that much of it is non-scientific. Uh, there is a lot of speculation today, which is just speculation, because not so much is written about the Essenians themselves. And the Essenians were supposed to be a kind of super ascetic, uh, idealistic, utopian branch of uh, Judaism, some people who are a little bit like the Vedantins or something, and they lived in caves, and they lived in very primitive conditions, and they did not seek for comfort, and they, they did walk around dressed in white linen, and uh, they were purely vegetarian, and this and that. Uh, because of this, there are many things which uh, are a bit dubious, such as, for example, the mention which appears in the Bible later, concerning wine. These people cannot really say if it is wine such as fermented wine or wine just as the most, just as the grape juice boiled and stopped from its fermentation so it would be then just natural grape juice and not really wine. It will be the fruit of the wine but it will not be fermented so as to become alcoholic. On the other hand uh, there is this story with the fish 
multiplying the fish and other things which happen in the life of Jesus, which again are raising the big issue, if these were indeed Essenians, if the Essenians were purely vegetarian, because then you would not uh, expect this to lead to fish and stuff like this. There is an, an English scholar who translated a very, very old apocryphal gospel, the Gospel of Truth and the Gospel of the Twelve Apostles, uh, which are, again, apocryphal, uh, not among these uh, four official ones. And in those ones, the words which are used in Aramaic uh, uh, for all the things, there are actually some words, I'm sorry, I cannot give you the exact details, I can give you the bibliography where you can go and seek deeper. Uh, he is arguing a lot on the fact that actually the word which is used in the Bible for fish, it is actually a generic word which means something which comes together with the food. It's a kind of uh, side dish to the basic food and it can as well mean raisins and it can as well mean grapes and as well. So if you say about multiplication of bread and fish, you can in Aramaic apparently read it as multiplication of bread and uh, grapes or bread and something. I'm simply saying this because this is rising an important controversy in the life of Jesus. If the man was really advocating the wine, because at some time apparently he apparently multiplies wine. He does his first recorded miracle concerns wine. And many Christians felt themselves encouraged and say, see, even Jesus didn't find anything wrong with the wine. The heck with it, you know, we can drink a good glass of wine now and then because it's okay. While, for example, the fundamentalists of Tibet, they would not take wine because they would consider that wine is damaging the brain cells and it is not good for seeing auras and developing clairvoyance. Or like in India, they would condemn alcoholic beverages and things like this. And therefore, this is rising a lot of controversy because if indeed uh, John uh, somehow uh, inspired Jesus from the Essenian tradition, and if this Essenian tradition uh, is the way it has been said it is, then automatically we cannot have fish, most probably. We cannot have wine. And we cannot have a lot of things because those people are indeed very tough, very ascetic. They would be some very sattvic, vegan, uh, extreme uh, type of people in that way. On the other hand, uh, remember that it is very possible that Jesus has traveled a lot and some of the mystery of his existence should be found in the fact that he got inspiration from India Indian spirituality, Buddhist spirituality, and others. And therefore, uh, maybe some of these things are having a different origin in the teachings of Jesus. Fact is that uh, in the official Bible, they do not speculate so much on the relationship between John and Jesus. Jesus, were, Jesus and uh, John, John the Baptist, were second-degree cousins. They apparently didn't see each other much. Suddenly John was a great prophet. He started earlier. He was already having a fame and a reputation. And Jesus uh, sees him basically once or twice in his adult life. And that's all. Therefore, uh, officially we do not know much about the actual relationship between them. Because if we can admit, for example, that Jesus was 12 years in India 
and uh, John preached in Judea, then John preached in uh, the desert, then Jesus came when he was 30, then he came to John and he took his baptism, and then basically uh, they didn't see each other because soon John was murdered. So in that way, there doesn't seem to be, while some people would say John was the guru of Jesus and coached him, and therefore there must have been a lot of stuff they had in common, other traditions mention that. Not that it's very important, but it's for you to know the context, to know the extremes, to know the alternatives within which the life of these two people are going. And fact is that this John, uh, the cousin of Jesus, he is a very hot type of a prophet. He is very much the type of typical Old Testament prophet. And he... Uh, lives in the desert, he's living this very ascetic lifestyle, as you'll see, and uh, basically he's coming with a new, new thing. He says, I quote, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This story is hiding in it a big thing in itself. What is this repentance? The word itself is very rare and many people don't understand it. To repent, to repent means that you have committed a grievous sin, and after you have done it, you repent. You are sorry, and more that you are sorry. You are sorry, and actually you try to correct it, to compensate for it. You can say that Milarepa, after he killed 35 people in black magic, he bitterly repented. That means not only that he was sorry, and he said, sorry, uh, sorry that I killed you all 35, uh, I shall not do it again. But he actually tried to compensate for it, he shed tears for it, he felt guilty for it, and he was trying to do something to compensate that. What I am trying to tell you here is that John the Baptist actually introduces the concept of repentance. The concept of repentance, later yogis, they have looked at it, and they have tried to say what is so famous, because repentance starts with John the Baptist, and uh, actually it is a concept which appears later in the Bible. There is a concept which says that if people repent, then God may forgive them. There is a story, I forgot from where it is right now, in the Old Testament, where there is announced a big catastrophe, a big cataclysm, earthquake, plague, uh, whatever, the punishment of God on one of the cities of the Old Testament, and the king from there being a faithful king, and the people of the town being faithful, they all dressed it themselves in sack, and they put poured ashes on their head, and they did fasting for many days, and they, the whole town, that means thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, they did tapas, as we'd say in yoga, and then that catastrophe did not happen anymore. That means it's kind of repented, and kind of the forgiveness was over them. But it is John the Baptist who comes first and founds that, lays the foundation of that, like repentance is a way to turn back to God. The yogic implication of this repentance is that repentance, the way John the Baptist describes it, it's like a method for burning all the negative karma. That means, basically, it would say that if you sincerely repent, and that's the catch, it is as pretentious 
as it is the detachment in karma yoga. If you pretend you do karma yoga, but actually you are egoistic and you are not detached, actually you can get to do horrible things, pretending that you are doing them in the name of God, and it's a karma yoga, and basically you are just getting a lot of karma and you go straight to hell, because first of all you lied to yourself, claiming that you are detached and do things for God. Uh, but on the other hand, it is the same with this repentance. If you try to repent as lip service, superficially, that is not good enough. Because in your heart of hearts, you know. And basically repentance, it's like closing a wound forever. That means if I repent for having done violence, that means when I repent, I will not be able simply to ever do violence again. That means repentance is a kind of sealing that subject forever and ever. That means when I repent, I can do what Milarepa did and kill 35 people, and then I'm saying, oh my God, you know, my soul, I've betrayed my soul, I've sold myself, I'm going to hell, my evolution is forfeit, this and that, and then I bitterly, bitterly repent, and I cry, and I break down, usually repentance is accompanied by crying, it is crying your heart out, it is really crying bitterly, and you repent, and it's kind of something in you takes an oath and it says, never again shall I do this thing. Never, never again shall I do this thing. If I have to die and I'm not going to do this thing again. And then basically, as I told you once in our evening meetings like this, then there can come a test. Usually when you repent, there is coming a test, a circumstance. Life is so bitchy in a certain way that it puts you exactly in the same situation again. And then you will see if you really repented or not. Because if you did not repent, you will say, right, I did repent, but not for this circle. I mean, this is an exception. And uh, for in such a situation, of course, I'm allowed to defend myself or to do that. That is not repentance. It shows you have not repented. When you repent, you'd prefer your right hand to be cut off than you to touch that again or to do that thing again. There is no but. There is no exception. When you repent, you repent indeed and you are clean. Your soul is cleansed completely. And that is why repentance is actually a radical method. It is a method which involves the arousing of the heart chakra and it simply says this much. If a person repents, even if that person is a terrible killer like Milarepa or whoever, even if that person committed genocide, that person still can be forgiven. Remember that for God, a ton of karma means nothing. It's nothing. It's zero. Any energy of this universe, either we talk a planet or a galaxy or a huge amount of energy, is still nothing, an atom, compared with the divine consciousness. Therefore, what is the karma of a person? Somebody can have a karma as big and as bitter as the karma of Napoleon, for example, who created war and destruction and whatever he did. And yet, that karma can be forgiven in a second. That's the great message. It's one of the great breakthroughs which Jesus is bringing. Jesus is bringing, as you will see, 
two different breakthroughs. One of them is that he comes with a thing and he says karma can be shared. One person can bear the cross of another person. And yes, I, Jesus, the Son of God, I can actually bear the sins of the world. I can take a huge, impressive amount of karma upon myself, thus relieving the world of its obscurity, relieving the world of its pain and ignorance, which does not exist before. Remember that even Buddha doesn't say that. And in Buddhism today, you can find the concept that somebody can take the karma of somebody else. But it appeared only in the year 1200 when Jesus had been on earth for more than 1200 years and this message was in the mind of the planet. In the mind of this planet, the first one who comes with this is Jesus. Even the Hindus, the Shastras of the Hindus, they do not contain the idea that somebody can or ought to take upon themselves the karma of somebody else. That means, uh, I remember I once I, talking, I was talking with Swami Gitananda, who was a Manipuristic, fundamentalistic, uh, fanatic type of uh, old-fashioned Hindu, and he was commenting very unfavorably the fact that Ramakrishna died of cancer. And I said, look, you are the only one who says this, because the whole India knows, and it is written in books, that Ramakrishna passed away from cancer because he took upon himself karma of hundreds and thousands of people. Basically, everybody who visited him got their karma cleansed by Ramakrishna. So he simply committed an act of sacrifice. And he immediately jumped up and he said, please show me any place in the Shastras of Hinduism where it says that somebody should take upon themselves the karma of anybody else. I mean, if Ramakrishna did that, maybe he should have been committed to a mental hospital. He was just a sick idiot, you know, because you shouldn't do that. Hinduism does not mention that, although modern Hindu gurus after the year 1000 or so, they do that. But that is the telepathic collective mind influence of Jesus. It is Jesus first in history who planted that seed in the mind of this planet and then it became a good common to the Hindus and to Tibetans and everybody. Before Jesus, People were not able to think that thought. That alternative did not exist. So basically, Jesus, I'm coming back onto that. That's a big thing. So Jesus brings us one major change in the fact that he says one person can atone for another person. One person can burn the karma of another person. And then he uh, substantiates, he agrees, and thus he definitively allows it to exist. The story, the, uh, the proposal of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, even before Jesus, he comes with the idea that repentance can clean your sins and your karma in a second. If you repent for true. That means if you repent indeed. It doesn't matter. You could have been a genocide killer and so on. If you repent, God can forgive and cancel that in a second because it is within the power of God to do that. And that is why repentance is just a method of dealing with karma. If you understand it, and of course that's the sincerity of it. You cannot repent every five minutes. I kill somebody, then I repent. Then I kill again somebody, then I repent again. It doesn't work that way. Repentance, once you've done it, 
It is sincere and it is a total thing which cannot be repeated. You will not fall in the same mistake. Therefore, uh, this story about repentance, because it's very simple as what was John teaching. Many people speculate that maybe John was a guru and teaching. And uh, the Bible doesn't say so and neither of the Gospels seem to imply that. The Bible seems to say that Jesus, I'm sorry, that uh, John the Baptist simply was preaching to people, repent. Repent, great times are at hand, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent, you can change today. Even if you have been in the, born in the wrong family, in the wrong town, in the wrong thing, and you did the wrong thing and so on, you still can repent right now. That means meditate, be in a spiritual crisis like Sundar Singh, spend three days in prayer without eating and sleeping, whip yourself up to a frenzy, and yes, repent. And if you repent indeed, your karma is gone. There is no, no, nothing to be compensated anymore. Therefore, that's for those who are intense. This, the type of person who does this is the type of person who has an arousing of jivatma. Very often for many people, when you have this jivatma experience, those of you who are in the third month, uh, will learn it and those uh, who are beyond the third month you know exactly what I say it is something which we teach in the third week of the third month this experience of Jivatma feels like a repentance when I was teaching about Jivatman I was telling you about an acquaintance of mine a woman who had this arousing of the soul at the age of 36 or 37 or 38 and until then she was an atheist and everything and when she broke down and she realized, the first thought coming in her mind is, Oh my God, how stupid I could have been, how I wasted the most valuable years of my life in ignorance and atheism. That means I have lived a materialistic, terrible life, and now I'm 37 and I'm only now discovering God. And it's kind of, Oh my God, how much I repent, how sorry I am, Oh God that I have denied you for 37 years or for 38 years, like an idiot. And now that I realize, I don't know what to do. I would be able to eat shit. I would be able to stand on one toe for 10 years to just to show you how sorry I am that I have wasted my life on this. Basically, that's a very intense emotion. That is why I remember that this repentance thing, like the bhakti, it is addressing to people who are emotionally intense, to the fanatics, to the people who can cry and change their life in a second forever. That means this kind of people can repent. If you are moderate and measured and reserved and a bit of a cold fish and cool, you cannot repent. Repent is a kind of extreme act in which all your life is torn down and it's kind of in that moment you can run in the desert like St. Mary of Egypt and live for the next 40 years naked in the desert. It's a kind of a madness. It's a kind of a fanatic intensity of feelings which makes this repentance possible. Remember the mild person, the person who is, in, uh, who is average in intensity cannot repent. You have to be a bit crazy to be able to repent. You have to be truly, truly hot. You have to be intense.
to be able to repent. And that's the first thing which makes it classic. That's what John brings. That John being a wild man and living in the desert himself, he brings this message. It's so easy to change your life. It's so easy to make peace with God again. Only if you would repent. If, if you would be squeezed by the ball so much as to find the intensity, the desperation, the fear, the momentum to say now or never, you know, I'm going back to God and this is it. That would be it. It is like Ramana Maharishi. He found the momentum because he got afraid he was going to die. And being afraid of death, he entered into this supreme fear and crisis and he found his self. That's a kind of the equivalent type of energy. A kind of mad change which changes you now for the rest of your life. Therefore, John the Baptist is this typical, this hot, is this kind of prophet which mixes the heart at the same time mixing it with the heat, with this specific Jewish Manipura heat, like many of the Jewish old prophets, they are Manipuristic and hot, and they have this kind of almost intolerant heat about that either you are with God or not. I mean, it's kind of, we don't joke here, you know, it's kind of, it's serious thing and it's hot and everything. And <clears throat> the Bible, the Gospel of Matthew continues. This is he who has spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Quote, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. He was literally a voice calling in the desert, although that is having the metaphorical feeling, uh, meaning a voice calling in the desert. That means one who speaks and nobody who wants to listen. One who says, change your ways, change your hearts. And it's a voice calling in the desert. The world is a desert. People's hearts are a desert. And the voice calls in the desert saying, repent, repent, change your ways, prepare the ways of the Lord, uh, and so on. In a certain way, you can say that John had this uh, not very rewarding task that he was fighting with people. He was dealing with people who are not who are always trying to cheat to see what can I get out of this and so on, while he himself was a wild man, he had cultivated this wild energy. Just to describe his personality there, it follows. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. So much for the Rastafarians. His food was locusts and wild honey. This again brings a weird thing, because eating locusts is eating animals and it's not very vegan in any way or by any means. And therefore you could say, well, uh, maybe that was the must. I mean, in the desert, what would you eat? If you wouldn't eat grasshoppers and honey, you'd die of hunger or whatever. That's still a mystery. Then that would come against the fact that John was an Essenian who was going dressed in white and eating only vegan diet and being... Maybe, indeed, he sounds more in the Bible like being really wild and living on his own and kind of going into these extremes. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. That's another hint, confessing their sins. That means you cannot repent if you don't confess 
That's where it comes later in Christian church, the ritual of confession, that if you confess, it's kind of you can forgive yourself and you can hope that God can forgive you. If you cannot confess, then it means that your heart is hardened and then you cannot weep. You cannot shed a tear for that and therefore such a person cannot repent. That is why there is something even in the activity of John the Baptist who prepares many of the things which will come later. Repentance, confession and all kind of similar things. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And I continue first with all his raving. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. Other texts they say, whose sandals I am not fit to bind, to tie. That simply is an act of humility. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. End of quote. He is obviously raving angrily, and his anger is one which Jesus will take over a lot, because anger would always go against the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and others of their kind, the high priests, and call them vipers as well. Basically, John the Baptist, who is a man of clean heart and repentance, such a man of such a stature can immediately feel when other people are cheaters and when they don't have a clean heart. And there are the Phariseans, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who come and they basically would like to assure themselves, to put their ass on two horses at the same time, to sail in two boats at the same time if it's possible. Like we have our stuff, but here is a new prophet. Maybe we can get the baptism of this prophet, so we get his blessing also. And in this way, we are both with this and with this. It's kind of we are assured from all sides that uh, we'll fall on our feet, whatever happens. And a man like John, a fanatic like John, cannot tolerate such a, a cupidity, such a compromising uh, spirit. And he raves at them, he lashes at them completely uh, by saying, uh, nah, you, now you realize that this baptism can escape you, can save you, and you want to do it, you know. And it's kind of, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Like, I can see it coming. And uh, he says, uh, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, which is again the forerunner of the great statement of Jesus from later, who says any tree is known by its fruit. Jesus is the one who takes over this comparison and uh, where he sees here that the axe is at the root of the trees. It is exactly Jesus who takes this later as a metaphor. So again, you can see some common points in what uh, John the Baptist says. 
then again there are obviously some teachings here with John, which John shares with Jesus and since John is six months older and apparently he started his public mission earlier one may presume that okay perhaps John came with some of these uh, truths and perhaps why not some of these truths are belonging indeed to the Essenians so maybe the message of Jesus is a mixture of Essenian fundamentalism, Sattvic uh, Judaism, uh, vegan uh, holy Judaism, mixed up with some Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism and other things, which also Jesus might have picked up from India or from wherever he traveled. Basically, uh, he says produce fruit in keeping with repentance that means you are not going to fool me telling i repent i repent okay just baptize me because he says produce fruit you you are not really repented because look at the fruits i mean i know you will say with your lips i repent but then when you'll go back you'll do the same shit as you did before which shows that you did not repent therefore you are actually not producing fruit in accordance with your repentance and he says, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's an allusion to the arrogance of the Jewish priests in those days, who believed that if they were children of Abraham, they could run the whole world and they could do everything to everybody, because they were the chosen ones and everybody else was nothing, was trash. They were just the Gentiles, the barbarians, the people on the outer darkness. They were the people who were more or less half human, a bit of cattle rather, and that is why they would always say, you know, whatever shit I do, but I am a child of Abraham. And it's kind of God has to, uh, you know, forgive me endlessly and support me endlessly just because I am from the breed of Abraham. And by that fact alone, I am uh, holy. And John tells them very clearly, God can raise up children for Abraham from the stones. That means it's kind of, what? why are you so proud? That the, What's the big meaning of that? In front of God, that means nothing. It is the fruits which are important there. And he warns them, saying a terrible truth, which is taken later by Jesus. The axe is already at the root of the trees, which means it is imminent. Some change here is imminent. Some trees are going to get it. Some trees are going to be cut off. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Which to be cut down means to be cut off from the divine influence, which is a terrible thing. And basically he says there is a time of judgment, there is a time of change coming up. In which way John is very stern. He from the very beginning uh, tells them, I can see through you and through your deceitful tricks. You are just trying to cheat but your heart is not pure. And he announces, that's an announcement, he says, I am baptizing you with water, which is kind of the small thing, but my baptism is not yet the baptism, because the one who comes after me, and he implies obviously Jesus by that, is has not yet come. There will come one after me, whose sandals I am not fit to carry, that means I am not even the good to be the servant, because I am a human being, I am John the Baptist, and that guy is not a guy, that guy is God. So I am not worthy to carry his sandals. It's not like he is a stronger enlightened being than I am, 
and he is a big yogi and I am a small yogi. It's not like this. He's God and period. I mean, that simply makes an abyss between me and him. And that's why as strong, as good as I am, I am not able even to carry his sandals, to tie, to tie his shoelaces, because that one is not human in that way, is of divine breed. And he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. This thing with fire is a bit of a Manipura raving. It is also that for some people the Holy Spirit uh, seem to appear as tongues of fire, as flames of fire. But that's not fire, the Tejas Tattva, the fire Tattva from yoga. It's not a manifestation of fire on some levels, on Manipura and its sub-levels. It is fire only in a very metaphorical way, like in India, Kundalini is sometimes called the fire of Kundalini. But that's not because Kundalini is in Manipura or has some special connection with Manipura, because it doesn't. It's a symbol used in another way. It's like using different symbols. So here, when you uh, compare Holy Spirit with fire, please remember, fire doesn't... Have, I'm sorry... The Holy Spirit has nothing to do with Manipura Chakra under all its sub-levels or anything like this. Holy Spirit is only compared poetically to fire, but it is not of the nature of the Tejas Tattva. And uh, basically his uh, warning is very sternly continuing, saying his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That means there is going to come a separation from the dark and the light. It's kind of, there comes a time where you have to say yes or no. It's kind of, Jesus later says, he who is not with me is against me. It's kind of, you know, choose. Choose, you are on the right side or on the left side. You can't be on both. Finish with the compromises. No more riding two horses. No more sailing in two boats. Today is the, is the day of voting. You know, vote for God's sake. Once today, for this or for that. And that is a bit of uncompromising. It's like pushing you to define your position. Neutral positions are not existing. It's left or right. It's like a seesaw. Either it's this way or it's this way. You don't have a middle position into it. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? This automatically says that Jesus had heard of John and his mission. He came to take this baptism. This seems to be a fact that Jesus also wanted to fulfill things according to the prophets and to go through a traditional connection like exactly like somebody who wants to do something in Indian environment and then he takes a sannyasa and he becomes initiated, he could skip the steps and say, hey, the heck, I don't need these things. They are all formalities and so on. But one like Jesus says, no, let's even fulfill this formality because it doesn't cost us anything. Let's do things as ideally as possible. So it's like, I know but it doesn't matter. I still am humble enough to fulfill things by the book so that things should remain in history exemplary and as a model. And the second, the last implication of this is that obviously John seems to be the first man that recognizes Jesus. Because when a man like John, he says, I need to be baptized by you, 
it's kind of I'm immediately putting the upper position to you and I'm saying you are the boss. I'm baptizing all those people, but compared to you, I need to be baptized by you. That makes John the Baptist the first man who sees divinity in Jesus. And because of this, the Christian apologetics, the Christian uh, authors, theologists, they have raised John the Baptist to the title of the greatest among mortals. That means it's kind of among those born of uh, the flesh, so to speak, there would be nobody, I mean, not even Buddha or Milarepa or whatever, bigger than John, they would believe, because John is the first one who saw through, and he didn't need any miracles, and he didn't need anything, just to look at Jesus and to immediately see, this man is the man, this man is the thing, this man is indeed the ultimate. And that would make uh, John like super inspired, like totally, totally uh, inspired or realized. And in that uh, respect, uh, this gives to John, as you will see in Christian theology later, uh, John the Baptist, that is not John the Apostle, that's another person, totally other person, a place of pride. And Jesus replied, let it be so for now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. So basically, Jesus got baptized. You can ask yourself, what did Jesus have to repent from? He didn't have much to repent from because apparently he was already fully conscious at this moment of who he was and he freely accepted yes. And he apparently knew already what was to be done, what he intended to do. And uh, therefore, there was not that he repented. Something he does, a formal gesture, like to be integrated in the spiritual flow of his time and from there to start further on. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Basically, that is sounding purely like a mystic vision, because if you imagine that if that voice and light would indeed have been heard publicly, Everybody in that area would have fallen on their knees and witnessed it as a miracle and known about it. While that was not the case. So that is more like a vision that in the moment when he was baptized, basically he started from this moment on, he kind of started his mission. This was kind of the initial point. Okay, I came, I took the baptism of John to go into this lineage. Maybe I just came from abroad now and I'm something else. And from today we start, I mean business from today. From today we are starting doing those things. It's like day one is today. So the baptism means more like an initialization of the mission. The symbol of the dove as the symbol of the Holy Spirit or associated with it. Uh, there are many people who believe that the birds, especially the doves and others, they are in connection with high things. We know that in yoga, indeed, they have something to do with Anahata. There were many saints and mystics, for example, when they came out, the birds came and sat on their shoulders, and they were not afraid of them. So like through their Anahata, they even attracted the wild animals of nature, such as birds who were not afraid to sit on their shoulders and stuff. So we can connect this with a lot of things, but these are mostly symbols. 
and the voice from heaven, which is just a mystic vision of Jesus, ultimately, perhaps of Jesus and John together, saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. It's like the divine consciousness finds a full expression in this one. It's like the first confirmation, which tends to point to the fact that Jesus, this Jesus, is indeed apart from the rest of mankind, while at the same time having the appearance of a human being. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Parenthesis before I go with that further. That means Jesus, even Jesus, had to pass his own tests, which again shows that it is more probable that if he had to do that right now, he was not like fully enlightened as a child. In his case also we can speak about an awakening to the full condition of who I am. It's like it's not necessary for Jesus as a seven-year-old child, or twelve for the case, to actually have known fully who he was and what he was going to do. He might as well have had a childhood like every other child, because they were not necessary for him at that time to do anything spectacular about this. It was not him who at the age of eight days started talking and told to his father, Dad, take me out of here in Egypt because King Herod wants to kill me. It, was, it didn't come through him. It was At that time he was not performing miracles or anything. Basically, you can simply say even Jesus had to... Uh, even such a divine spirit once manifesting in a body, he has to confirm himself. It's like you pass an examination and everybody knows, well, you can pass this examination for you, this exam, and yet you do it. It's exactly as he took baptism, although he didn't need any baptism from John. At the same time, he needed to fulfill his spiritual tests so that things should be done step by step and confirmed in that way. So Jesus is taken and his typical temptation is to be tempted by fasting. Jesus here duplicates 40 days and 40 nights. First of all, the feet of Moses, who is supposed to have fasted 40 days and 40 nights, when he received the first thing from God, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments of God on Mount Sinai. And therefore, Jesus is doing that. By this, he shows himself to be the next Moses, the next prophet in line. So it's a clear continuity. Some yogis of India claim that if you fast for so long time, this would automatically bring about an arousing of Vishuddha Chakra. Because to, when you fast a lot, you need to be fed by cosmic energy through Vishuddha Chakra. Everybody in advanced yoga who has been fasting more than three days knows that it is recommended when you want to fast a lot to work on Vishuddha Chakra, such as to do Ardha Matsyendrasana, shoulder stand, pranayama on Vishuddha and other things, because it is Vishuddha which brings this energy that supplements and that actually replaces the prana that we get from food. Therefore, fasting, it all fits. Fasting is also a supreme form, supreme maybe is too much said, but it is a, an intense, an extreme form of purification. 
and purification is just Vishuddha again. Therefore, by fasting, especially for a long time, you purify, you activate Vishuddha. Some yogis of India believe, as I said, that fasting for so long time, it actually confronts you with the ultimate temptation of Vishuddha. It's like each and every chakra has got its own tests. Like when you are on Svadhisthana, you will be confronted with your sex and emotions. When you are on Manipura, you will be confronted with your arrogance and vanity and pride. When you are on each chakra, it's like you have a confrontation with the issue of that chakra. When you are on Vishuddha, it will be like the last one or a very high one, which is supposed to be like a confrontation with the devil himself. It would be like a confrontation with everything which is diabolic. That is why, remember that Vishuddha is not the end of spirituality. Sahasrara is the end of spirituality. That is why, while in normal yoga we say uh, that all, everything which is negative in the human being is in Muladhara, Svadhisthana, Manipura, that statement is valid emotionally in terms of daily life and its emotions. But if you want to go at a metaphysical level, we can say that actually there are some thresholds, there are some tests in Anahata and in Vishuddha and in Ajna. That means you don't have any more tests when you have reached Sahasrara. It seems ultimately, if you want me to make this parenthesis, that yes, even Ajna is having its tests. For example, Ajna is the sixth chakra, not the seventh. If you reach Ajna and you don't reach Sahasrara, you are not yet complete. It is very significant that in the Apocalypse, in the book of Revelation of John in the end, actually John is defining the number of the devil, the satanic number, as being nothing else but three times six, 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 six. And basically what he is telling us, it's strange, why should six, six repeated three times over? Why should six be a diabolic number? Precisely that, because it is six without seven. The devil or Lucifer in various uh, theologies, like in the Jewish theology, in the Christian theology, in the Islamic theology, Lucifer is supposed to have a star in his forehead, which basically says Ajna Chakra. Ajna Chakra, but not Sahasrara. Intelligence can still be diabolic intelligence. Sahasrara, never. That is why even six is not good enough. Only seven is good enough. And that is why, uh, coming back to it, yes, even Vishuddha would have its own temptation. And fasting for 40 days was supposed to be a kind of testing yourself for that. That is why you can see that doing 40 days fasts is more than just a purification. And it may be, and I have actually seen one such case, I told you that once I knew a girl who did 43 days of fast just to get a guy for a husband. For that woman, that fast was also the beginning of her downfall, spiritually speaking. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, that being taken from one of the Psalms. 
of uh, King David. So basically, the devil says, if you want to build up this funny fantasy in your mind that you are the king, uh, that you are the son of God, and you want to go on in your life believing that, then why don't you demonstrate it? And here Jesus is again striking back, lashing back, and Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is indeed fundamental. First of all, Jesus denies that. He says, I don't need any demonstration. I am not an exhibitionist. I don't need to demonstrate neither to myself nor to anybody that I am uh, the Son of God. That means I, am, I don't need any demonstration. Why shall I do this? Just because you say so. And you will see that in his life, Jesus always seems to do the things when they come by themselves and when he thinks fit. And when he is pushed to perform a miracle or to show a sign, he gives them the finger and he says, you are not going to get any sign. That means these signs or miracles, they don't come just because I want to show you something. They are coming from the divine consciousness because they have to come and because things are like that. So in this way, Jesus flatly denies, but he says a super important word, which is having many more applications in human life. And I often see that many people do not understand this and they fail at this one. Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Remember that always you are not supposed to do that. That means to say, well, God will help me. God will protect me. I don't care because that means that you force God to poke his finger in this world and to interfere. Basically, you are forcing God to do a miracle. You are not supposed to do that because God is not your servant. Quite the contrary. Therefore, this is a demonic, luciferic thing that people think that because they are with God, God has some duty to protect them. It is not so. Forget about that. That is a total delusion. Jesus says you shall not do not put the Lord your God to the test. That means never rely that God will perform a miracle for you. If you rely on that, you put God to the test. If you try to have God demonstrate something, that's ultimately exactly what Judas did. He tried to put God to the test. He said, let's take Jesus and put him in the front of the high priest and then he will kick their ass and show them who he really is. What Judas did, I'm, yeah, it is exactly that ultimate mistake. He tried to put God to the test. And God gave him the finger. He said, you cannot put me to the test. That means you cannot remember in many circumstances of life, people who are arrogant or who feel special in some way, they try to put God to test. God, if you really love me, you'll do this for me. I dare to ride on a motorcycle with great speed because God is with me. If you do that, that's an, a demonic, luciferic act by which you are actually trying to put God to the test. You are not supposed to do that. That is why many yogis, for example, recommend to their disciples not to practice extreme sports, not to practice dangerous things, such as mountain climbing, uh, whatever, because some of them, they overdo it and they put God to the test. 
They simply think I'm chosen, I'm special, and I can get away with it. That attitude is the mother of demonism, remember, of Luciferianism. It's a kind of inflated ego where you believe that God has the duty to do something for you just because you are a bit more special than the others. And remember, if Jesus said, because he said, the devil says, well, throw yourself up and God will not let you perish, exactly as he didn't let you as a child to die under the knife of Herod, and uh, you are protected miraculously, the angels are always around you, even if you throw yourself from the temple, you are unbreakable, you are the one who is meant to change the history. Demonstrate that. And Jesus says, why shall I? I don't need to demonstrate anything. This demonstration is only of people who lack the confidence. He basically says, I have enough faith to believe that without any demonstration. I don't need any demonstration of that. Therefore, I don't need to ask God, God, show me that you are with me, and then only I am going to preach in your name. Because somebody would say, you know, first give me a proof, and then I'm going to do things. That is the beauty of it. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So basically, the last temptation was the temptation of ultimate power. The Faustian temptation, I'll give you power, but sell your soul to me ultimately which is happening more often than you'd believe implicitly for some people and Jesus lashes back and refuses that one obviously saying no God but God no God but one God forget about it and then the paragraph concludes by saying then the devil left him and angels came and attended him that means it's a test once he took the test he was on the next grade and angels came, came and attended him. From now on, the devil is kind of not having any power. Actually, the devil seems to tempt him once more in a weird way. But actually, the devil is not really having that power anymore. And from that moment on, the fate of Jesus is sealed. It's like he passed his tests. He's good for the job. Now he's going to do it. And therefore, the next paragraph is called, Jesus Begins to Preach. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Living Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness, have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This is again the mysterious visions of old prophets such as Isaiah. Basically, the Bible actually is all the time trying to line up Jesus with everything the prophets have said to demonstrate again and again, this is the man. Look that everything fits. And indeed, it's not just a absurdity. This is not just the adulterous kid of a fornicating woman with a German soldier. 
this is the man of the destiny that was predicted from the prophets and the prophets. This is uh, things where you can assume that things have been a bit adjusted. That means the theologians would have been very careful to make these things sound right. Remember that the prophets cannot always be super, super accurate. Because the prophets see things of the future which have a certain margin of probability. So even Nostradamus and other great prophetic people, they didn't see 100%. They saw 90%. And that's pretty good already. That is why, of course, you can expect that not everything that the prophet Zechariah or Jeremiah or Isaiah, for the case, said, not that all of it is going to be literally fulfilled and so on. That is why the theologians desperately have tried to find those paragraphs from the old Jewish prophets who would fit and who would stick to the life of Jesus and kind of reconfirm, even in prophetic ways, that, lo, this is the man, actually. That is why all the time you find this with the prophecies. And basically, uh, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Suddenly, he's preaching the same thing. John the Baptist had been arrested, and after not a long time, he was actually murdered by the king of the time, another Herod. And at the same time, Jesus takes over automatically. It is also like uh, you will see, there is a very clear following of events here, that Actually, there is a synchronicity. Things are in time. At the moment when Jesus hears that John is dead, from that moment on, his mission becomes full power. And from that moment on, he starts doing the biggest things already. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, later called Peter, and his brother Andrew. These were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. The official history of the church actually says that Andrew was, had been a disciple of John the Baptist, and actually he came to Jesus first before Simon Peter, and that actually Andrew was the first ever disciple of Jesus. He is called the first called, the first one called. So Andrew is like, uh, uh, in time, he bears the emblem of being the first ever of the apostles, of the disciples of Christ. And together with him there comes Simon. And with this, Jesus is making a statement which should be obvious for many people. It again gives something. He says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. With this, he defines their life completely. With this... He defines their dharma. With this, he defines their task. That means you will come with me and I will make you fishers of men. That means you are going to fish souls and take them from the outer darkness and bring them to light. That means your mission is to teach, to speak, to convert, to baptize, to save. You are exactly as a fisherman goes to fish the fish. You have to fish people. You have to fish human souls. This is a very powerful thing because it shows from the very beginning the full scope of the intention of Jesus. That means I am going to make people into fishermen, fishers of men 
and therefore I'm going to fish souls. It's like uh, the thing is very, very obvious. That means you would say, well, if uh, people before were so good, then why would Jesus need to have fishers of soul? To fish them from what? That means wasn't Simon doing well what he did? That is the big question. And that is actually one of the questions, and there are many more coming up, and unfortunately some of them are pretty bitter. Those are some of those questions which create the big rift with Christianity and Judaism conceptually, because Jesus all the time seems to imply the time of Judaism is over, a new covenant is coming, a new testament is coming. That he, he simply means seems to say, I need you to fish people. Well, theoretically, somebody could say, you know what, why should you fish people? If Michael, uh, again, not Michael, if uh, Walter is a Buddhist, then why am I supposed to fish the soul of Walter? Because Walter is doing pretty good. Walter is a Buddhist. He is in the grace of the Buddha. He does, he does Vipassana or whatever he does. He's cool. Why should I go and disturb Walter? and make him a Christian from a Buddhist. What can I give him extra as a Christian compared to a Buddhist? It's like he exchanges one thing for another thing. What's the big deal? What is this arrogance to believe that I am better than Buddhists? You know, Walter, come to us and I will offer you a salvation which is faster and more sure than the salvation which you get there. It's like I'm offering you a superior religion. That's a bit of an arrogance. It takes a lot of balls to say such a thing that you are in a dark place and I'm taking you to a bright place. Therefore, when Jesus takes a Simon and an Andrew and he also tells them you are going to fish men, he basically seems to imply those men that you are going to fish they are not on the path of God. Because if they were on the path of God, then there would be no need to fish them. That means I have fished them already. I am God, and they belong to me already. But basically, Jesus seemed to consider that some of the things which were done in His time, either He speaks about the Jews themselves, or He speaks about the Gentiles and the other nations, later the Romans and the others, he seems to believe that they have nothing, because else it's very offensive. You know, people would say, why would Jesus take a simple Jewish peasant from a synagogue and turn him into a Christian or a follower of his, whatever it is? Wasn't he good enough in his synagogue doing his stuff? Well, apparently Jesus believes not. Jesus believes that he is bringing the next step, something which is better that the old step is somehow outdated. And in all his life, you will see that he has to fight with this. He all the time comes and says, it was said like this, now I'm telling you like this. It's like the law has changed, the century has changed, God has simply pushed the things one notch up. And now, we have to do things in another way. Finish with the Manipura of Moses, now we are going to the Anahata of Jesus. You know, we want to go to the next level simply and therefore this story with the fishermen of men with the fishers of men is very provocative because it is very aggressive he simply tells them you will have to fish men 
your mission is obvious. You have, that means from all over, from Buddhism, from, okay, he doesn't say from Buddhism, but from the Gentiles and from the Jews and so on, I, Jesus, believe that they are not doing good enough and they are going to hell or whatever, and therefore I have to make you fishers of men to save these poor souls, to give them the real eternal life. That was the first thing which automatically offended. Of course, you can expect that the Jewish priests of the time, they were flown, blown to the moon by such a statement that this guy is simply coming and implying obviously that everything we do is wrong and that now he is bringing the new connection to God and that ours is updated. It's like we've got uh, Norton Antivirus 2003 and it has expired already. Our subscription, subscription date is expired, you know, and we have to purchase Norton Antivirus 2004 because that's the new version, you know. It's kind of the same thing. Jesus is simply telling your religion is off. I'm coming with a new one, with the upgrade to it, which is the version 2. Of, uh, of it, you know, and that's of course very difficult to accept and very offending and it is kind of if you put this Manipura which Jesus obviously had and the kind of John the Baptist type of fire into it, it is expected that it will create a lot of backfire. You cannot expect those high priests, the Manipuristic ones, just to take it as doves and to swallow that gently. Because that would touch everything they believe. That would simply provoke them to the bone. <clears throat> Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. This John is the other John. This is the Apostle John, the one who to become famous as an Apostle. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Je Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So basically, this shows, the text emphasizes on immediately that these people left their house, left their family. Uh, Peter, at least we know for sure that he had a family and he had a wife and he had kids. And he simply left to be a hobo, to be a roaming vagabond together with Jesus in search of uh, whatever. Therefore, this would be a point like showing that these people fishermen or not, simple people or not, they had the fanaticism of John the Baptist. They were the people who could repent in a second. They were the kind of people who had the madness, the momentum, the balls, the brahmacharya, to snap in a second and to say, yes, I'm going with you. I am crazy enough to do that, to convert, to, to give my life to God just like that, whatever the price. That is, remember, fundamental. <clears throat> Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. That simply means the man got a following by healing a lot and doing a lot of things. This shows automatically that one of the main eye-catchers and one of the main 
goodwill catchers and one of the main attention attractors in the world is health. Even in the time of Jesus, people were cherishing their health as anything, as more than anything else. That is why, that is also one of the strong points in yoga. Yoga is a spirituality which at the same time provides health. And this fascinates many people because in the beginning, people don't, they are not saints and they are not selfless. People are pretty egoistic and they know pretty well their interests. And if yoga can make them healthy and strong, ah, then yoga is good and it's something which I want to do. If yoga wouldn't have the healing part including in it, which is practically a miraculous part really, then automatically fewer people would feel attracted to it. Jesus knew this very well and all his life he is applying this dirty trick, so to say. He first catches the attention of people by healing them. Always a miracle, healing a leper or healing a paralyzed or something is the one which gains the whole goodwill of everybody. You do that, everybody eats from the palm of your hand because people are completely hypnotized with hell because that's so important to them because they are so much fixed on their body and its issues. And Jesus is an admirable manipulator from this standpoint. He knows exactly the weak point of the people and he is giving them exactly the sweets that they need. He knows that they need to see health and healing. That's one of his main things. In the Gospel of Truth, one of the apocryphal Gospels, uh, many paragraphs are consecrated to the way Jesus was actually healing. And it appears that Jesus was not healing just by prayer and by fasting and by miracles. That is what the Bible allows us. It's like this guy was rising the lepers or the paralytics all the time. No, the gospel of truth says that Jesus was recommending diet. He was cleansing people's bowels. They described even how they had a large pumpkin full of water and a pipe like a straw, a kind of reed which was hollow inside and which you put in your anus. Basically those were enemas with water, a kind of shank prakshalana if you want to put it like this, or basti or whatever. So basically the gospel of truth tells to us in a very miraculous way that actually Jesus, uh, whenever it was possible, he was resorting to some exquisite knowledge which he had about alternative medicine. He was a great healer with diet and God knows, Hatha Yoga, uh, whatever other things, Shanka Prakshalana, Kriyas and things like this. When you read the Gospel of Truth, you get flabbergasted. You really get surprised because it's like a handbook of Kriya Yoga, really. It's like you read it and you can't believe it. Wow, this is what Jesus did? Incredible. That means 90% of the healings of Jesus I'll let him change the camera. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's okay. Take it easy, Miro. Take your time. <coughs> What's up? This is good to push.
Do that again. So what I was saying is that nine, it seems that 90% of that huge amount of healing that Jesus uh, did was actually not by miracle. I mean, Jesus himself was a miracle from this standpoint. But actually this man, he used down-to-earth methods such as Basti and the uh, Oksava diet or things like this that simply shows... First of all, that you don't need to go out of that, and that Jesus also had a huge reputation. What was that? Okay, I'm glad it popped. And therefore it shows, obviously, that Jesus had a huge reputation as a healer, as an extraordinary healer, and that's a lot of teaching for you. Any one of you in this room would ever dream in your life to do the work of God and to become fishers of men, don't forget to heal people and to become very, very good at healing. Because people don't come so much for your words, but if you can crack their back and put it back, then people will listen to you. That's the sad truth, that people are so materialistic and so egoistic that they will always want an advantage in it. And if you can propose them a spirituality which is containing healing, people will click to it immediately. And if you want to propose them something like Vedanta or something abstract and purely intellectual which does not heal at the same time, then people will listen less to that and will have less faith and will not be so convinced of that. That is a trick which you can learn from Jesus who apparently knew this very well. The fifth paragraph starts coming with the huge teachings of Jesus. And here we'll have to dwell a lot. Now, uh, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. That means already his reputation was becoming so big that it was time now to hit them with some spiritual stuff. It was time to go beyond Bastikriya. It was time to go to their soul. Now he had gained their will, goodwill. Now he had gained their sympathy and support. Now he was charismatic for them. Now it was time to tell them the other truth. Remember that in this way even the doctors have a great power. I don't know how many of you, there is a book written by Lloyd C. Douglas, the man who wrote that book, The Shirt of Christ. He also wrote another book about doctors, which is called Obstacles. And there he made a, plead, a plea for spiritual doctors, that if the doctor saves your arm, then he also has the right to tell you what you should do with your arm from today on. That means a doctor should be a priest at the same time, because the surgeon, everybody kisses the ass of the surgeon, being completely afraid for their life, and the surgeon is the one who saves my life. But unfortunately, most surgeons just go in hospitals and see, and go in, most surgeons are some gross, animal-like, very often manipuristic, demonic. They have some characteristics which are very gross and very rude, and you will hardly find a surgeon which is a spiritualist at the same time. 
and uh, kind of completely materialistic and gross and very often making up the big money and stuff like this. But one like Jesus says, if you would be a surgeon and people would eat from the palm of your hand, then if the surgeon says, I have operated you of your lungs, but now you have to pray half an hour every day to God to thank for that, then actually people would do immediately what the doctor says. That's why a doctor has a huge power over people and could become an excellent guru because people are terrorized by their health. People are hypochondriacs and they are so afraid of disease and stuff like this that the doctor has a huge power. And Jesus starts as a doctor and then he shows them that he is a priest as well. This combination is explosive. I have met in my life the monk who taught me chiropractic. He was a doctor and a monk. And this combination was incredible. I have seen this man doing miracles because people treated him as a religious guide, but at the same time he was an incredible doctor. And after he healed people, he could tell them anything and they would do it. If he would tell them from now on, look, I stepped on your back and cracked your back and made you healthy again, but I have one request from you. Please stop eating meat for the rest of your life. People would have done it. Simply because this guy had gone into their heart. Healing them, he had caught, he had caught their atten attention completely. Therefore, never forget those of you in this room, whoever will wish to become fishers of men, that that's where you catch people. In the health part is where you catch many people. That is... This is how the human psychology is made. And then he went and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying... It's like he was teaching his disciples, but basically you can assume that the crowd was there as well. And the first teaching which he gives here is the famous blessings. The blessings, they are a chapter in themselves. Some of them are very obvious, some of them are twisted. And Jesus is teaching them... A spiritual judo. He is suddenly teaching them that direct opposition is not the case. That sometimes when you seem to win, you actually lose. And sometimes when you seem to lose, like he seemed to lose later when they crucified him, and you actually win, you win everything, you win big time. And that is why Jesus, in a certain way, is telling to people, learn to lose in a spiritual way. Remember that if you lose, you will gain. He says at some poor, in some part, though all those who will lose their life because of me, they will gain it, actually. That means you seem to lose, but you win. There is a big, big illusion. That's the matrix. That's the Maya. In the eyes of the Maya, Napoleon is more important than some Christian mystic who spent his life in prayer. But in fact, in front of God, that mystic accumulated many more points than Napoleon who went to hell. That means the one who seems important is not so important in the eyes of God, and the one who doesn't seem to be very important can be very important, actually. And that is what Jesus tells them with these blessings. He says the first one, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That some, this statement is amazing because it's the basis of bhakti yoga and it's the basis of the heart. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit seems to imply those who are 
not very intelligent, those who are not very much philosophical and versed and metaphysical and so on. And he said, blessed are those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For the others, if you will notice, he uses the future. For the next one, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for, for they will be filled. But he doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Already, now, here. That means he's teaching a thing which is incredible. That sometimes being poor in spirit, if you are full of the heart, you are with God already. Nothing more than that is required. That is why much later when Judas is in turmoil and wants to push him to demonstrate himself, uh, Jesus is telling him, don't try to understand with the mind. Open your eyes and heart. That is like to be poor in spirit. He tells to Judah, Judah, you are too much of an intellectual. You are too much of a, uh, of a learned man like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the learned scribes and others. You are too much of a learned person and that's why you can't see the truth. The truth is very simple when you look at it in the simple way. This message is indeed amazing because the Zen masters and Bhakti yogis of India and others, they have discovered it. The truth is there. The great Abhinava Gupta says, what is this great reality? And he keeps on asking questions about what is this state of enlightenment? And then he says, listen to the answer. Don't, give, don't keep anything and don't give up anything. Stay the way you are and enjoy the bliss of totality. It's kind of, you are there already. Uh, Rumi, in one of his poets, he says, we are tasting the taste of eternity this minute. And in another poem, he says, there is no need to suffer. God is here. But that is the huge blindness of the human beings. That although it is so simple, and Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, you don't need to be sophisticated. The more simple you are, the more simple the truth is. That is why many Christian mystics, while doing prayer and being great tapasvins, they did an incredible act. They tried to simplify their spirit. I don't want books. I don't want theology. I, want, I don't want degrees. I don't want glory. I don't want to be anybody and anything. I'm simple. If I am a simple man, then I am everything that I am. Some mystics have gone to that extent of simplifying their minds totally. Like I told to some of the groups the, when I was talking about some things of the mind, there was one of the fathers of the desert. He was all the time sitting in his cell. And his cell was just a room of two by one, which was white. Whitewashed walls, nothing. That means what could he do in that room? You think you get, you get bored? to death to spend all your life in a two-by-one whitewashed room. And this monk was sitting in there not seeing anything. And one day he had to come out. He avoided coming out. His cell was everything. His universe was those two-by-one walls. And he came out to pull up some water or to do some uh, domestic job because there was nobody to do it and now he had to do it. Usually there were other younger people in the monastery who would do that job. But now he had to do it. 
And this old monk, he pulled his head over his eyes and he went almost like he could see only a little bit the ground just near his feet and he went fumbling like an old man and he pulled out a bucket of water and he took it back and he went back and the other monks asked him, look, we saw that even when you came out, you hid your eyes, you didn't look around, I mean you haven't been out for a year or so and now you are coming out of your room once a year and then you cover your eyes, what, what, what is this? And then he said, if I see a single tree, my mind will be busy with that tree for three weeks from now and it will come in my prayer. That means I want my mind to be empty like the walls of my room. And therefore, I don't want to see anything. Anything which you put in your mind encumbers your mind, burdens your mind, all those things from your mind. The more rich and loaded your mind is with things, the less you can see through because your mind is more and more complicated and it's like a screen that hides the self from you. That is why it's like you want to simplify your mind. A simple life, being alone or other things can do that. Surely there are many methods of doing that. Not everybody who does yoga or meditation goes in loneliness. But this is blessed, the poor in spirit. That means enlightenment is not a matter of being sophisticated in your mind. Sometimes somebody who is very simple can have everything. Remember all the things which I said. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this is a real tricky one, because here Jesus is using a parable. He says, blessed are those who mourn. But what do they mourn? That means Jesus seems to say, and this doesn't correspond with the rest of the character of Jesus. Jesus, in all his life, he seems to be a wild man and completely not concerned with people's menial uh, um, jobs or uh, interests. Like somebody is interested in their horse or in their money or in their house or something. Jesus tells them, boy, you are completely crazy, you know. You focus on things which the worms are eating and the rust is rusting. And you don't focus on God which is eternal. You are just wasting your lives and you are wasting your time in things which are already dead. That means Jesus doesn't really seem to pay attention to people's attachments. One is attached to her child and Jesus says, forget, forget about one man is burying his father and Jesus says, come with me. And the guy says, but uh, Lord, I would love to follow you to be your disciple because I heard from you or whatever. But please allow me first to finish the funeral of my father. I mean, it's a, it's a minor thing. And Jesus says, no, no, let the dead go with the dead and the life, the living. That means he took that guy from the funeral of his own father. That means Jesus was a bit of a rude guy, right? Because, I mean, he didn't allow that guy. Imagine what the family and the village and everybody said. Wow, Walter, like a crazy asshole. He stood up in the middle of the funeral of his father and he went with the other hippie. They just went and he left us with the corpse of his father that we shall bury. It's like he didn't love his father. He didn't consider. Look, he left in the middle of the funeral. That means Jesus didn't care at all about what the village would think. He was not really interested in this kind. He was always actually provoking, cutting deep into this and said, you have some attachment. Here is the surgeon cutting deep in your attachments. I mean, it's kind of, you have to learn that this life is not this bourgeois stupid thing which you are making out of it. That this life is a life for God. 
So he is very intolerant. He is a bit extreme, a bit fanatic in this way, like pushing the things really hard. And suddenly here he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This sounds like such a sooth saying, you know, blessed be those who mourn. I mean, uh, Walter is mourning there because his father died. And um, another Tom uh, from the Tom, Dick and Harry triad, <laughs> another Tom there is mourning because the thieves stole his money. And Dick, from the same group, famous group, is mourning because his girlfriend left him or because his wife died. Do you think Jesus cares about this? Jesus doesn't talk about this mourning because this would imply that uh, everybody who mourns for their lost wife or everybody who mourns for their lost job or everybody who mourns over, oh, don't worry, soothsaying Jesus said, those who mourn will be comforted. That sounds like so much British Protestant charity, social work, Mother Teresa, uh, you know, soothsaying, you know, all those who mourn shall be comforted. Jesus doesn't talk about that. The meaning of this is very clear when you look deep into it. Jesus says, blessed are those who cry for God. It's what Ramakrishna says. How many of you have ever cried because you don't know God? And that is something which happens in prayer. The people who reach the Jivatman, the awakening of the soul, or the people who reach to a, a real level of prayer, it is well known in prayer that when you pray really deep, you start crying. You shed tears, and those tears are a happiness tears. But at the same time, they are the tears of an indescribable longing. It's like you long for the divine, and it's a mixture of longing and at the same time bliss and happiness. That, that, that is called by the fathers of the desert and the Christian mystics the gift of tears. They say some people, like one in ten, not everybody who went to do prayer, one in ten or one in two, whatever, has the gift of tears. That means when they pray, they start crying after a while. And then they say, that's it. When you have the gift of tears, that's prayer. Without the tears, the prayer is not really prayer. It's kind of you are still too cool. You are doing it with your lips. It didn't reach in your heart. When it reaches in your heart, you cry when you pray. And therefore, it's obvious that people cry for God. Even the Christian monks which followed, until today they are all dressed in black. Why? It's the color of mourning. And Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The Christian monks and nuns, they dress in black because they are mourning for Jesus, because the groom has been taken from them and he shall come again one day. And until that day comes when Jesus shall come back, we mourn because God has been taken away from us. We don't have God physically with us as that was that grace 2,000 years ago. And until God will be with us again, we mourn. This is the mourning. Jesus doesn't speak about the mourning for social causes or for family causes or for material causes. He says, blessed are those who mourn. 
in the meaning of blessed are those who have so much longing for God that they can actually cry for desire of God, that they can cry for longing. Blessed are those for they will be comforted. How will they be comforted? Not by a social comfort, but they will be comforted by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter because it is supposed to generate the ecstasy, the bliss. So actually when he says they will be comforted, the meaning of that word, it means they shall receive the Holy Spirit. And to receive the Holy Spirit means to reach Ananda, it means to reach bliss, it means to reach Samadhi. So the meaning of this is blessed are those who cry for God because they shall reach ecstasy, they shall be blessed with ecstasy. And the next of the blessings which he gives here and which is taken from the prophets actually, he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. This is another amazing thing because the human tendency is always, always arrogance and vanity. Here I really need to stop and I think tonight will not go beyond this because I will have to comment on this and then I'll take your questions and we'll stop being so late. Blessed are the meek because they shall inherit the earth. What most people hate mostly is to be meek and humble. There are people always complain, I have been humbled so much. I felt so humble and, and it's like a punishment. Well, what Jesus says is wake up. To be humbled is a gift. It is not a punishment. Mahatma Gandhi echoing it in a rare way in India. He says humility is the solid foundation of all virtues. That is one of the cornerstones of Christianity and of the message of Jesus. Jesus himself was meek. When the devil said, prove that you are the son of God, Jesus says, it has been said, thou shall not tempt God. Thou shall not provoke God. That means even I, Jesus, that I am the avatar, that I am God, that I can walk on water and raise the dead, and I shall not have the cheek to challenge God, to tempt God in this way. That means, this statement is amazing. I am God and I am totally humble. He says it at some point later, because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life for many. That means, a man like Jesus can say, I am a prince among human beings. I am God on earth. Bring me incense and gold and myrrh and treat me. I am the king of the Jews. I am the king of the universe, not only of the Jews. I am everything. I am Alpha and Omega. I am, you know, you have to touch my big toe, you know. You have to listen to what I am telling to you. Jesus, although He teaches with authority and He is strong, Yet he manages to do that without being arrogant. He says the most incredible things about himself and his mission. And yet till the end of his life, he has the most complete humility. At some point, many people would say that's almost too flashy, too demonstrative. He washes the feet of his disciples because they cannot understand. And he says, look, I'm not here that you should treat me like a king. I am here 
like the last atom of this universe. I am Atman. I am Paramatman. I am the spirit. I am this spirit which is in every atom of this universe. I am in the Gospel of Thomas. He says, lift a stone and you'll find me. Look in the sky or whatever and you'll see me. It's kind of, I am everything. That, that is a typical Kashmir Shaivism, monistic type of statement. Amazing, that's why it's not accepted in the Bible. And basically he implies obviously this fundamental truth. I am the basis of the universe. Therefore I am like matter itself. I am humble. I am here to serve you. It is like God is your servant in a certain way. You are made of God and you may believe that you are something. But ultimately your God and the divine consciousness is humbly pushing it. It's like a flower which is pushed humbly by the roots and by the tree to blossom and to become a flower. The tree is doing a gentle, humble job and nobody looks at the tree. Everybody looks at the flower. But the flower would not exist without the roots which do the hard part of the job and they actually are the ones that suck from the earth and give to the tree and build up the flower and therefore Jesus is saying I am this one at some other time he says I was a prisoner and you visited me I was sick and you attended to me I was thirsty and you gave me to drink and it's kind of like I am everybody I am every suffering man on this planet I am all and everyone I am the cosmic consciousness and this cosmic consciousness is not arrogant. It is born in a stable, not in a palace. It is born in a place with straw, with a cow and a donkey in a barn. And so it's kind of, what do you want more humble than this? It's born out of simple people. It is not claiming any royalty, although people saw in him the king of the Jews, that if there is one who deserves to be the king of this mankind, that surely should be Jesus. We would like to have Jesus as the king of mankind. Mankind would be saved if we'd have a king like that. But, of course, people with their ego and arrogance, they cannot accept that. And therefore, Jesus is preaching, and that's the unavoidable ingredient of the heart. Jesus is preaching humility, humbleness, and in Christian mysticism that is the greatest value, that is the greatest obstacle, the worst obstacle that the human being has to fight ever is vanity and pride. Remember that always. Pride is your death. Pride is the one that kills you spiritually always. If you are proud vanitous, you lost it. You cannot afford to do that. That is so very well known that that is called the doom of Satan. Satan, Lucifer, the devil, whatever, is fallen from its exalted angelic position. Why? Because of pride. Not because of fornication. Not because of greed. Not because of this or that. But because of pride. Pride is the ultimate doom. It's like the last temptation is pride. That means some Christian mystics say, if you think that the demon of greed and the demon of sex are strong things to fight with, wait until you'll meet the demon of pride and then you'll see what a demon really is, how deep that really is. 
because the essence of our ego is to get puffed up. We always want to get puffed up. And that is uh, our biggest doom. And Jesus is coming exactly with the opposite of it. And He is striking so hard because He is coming in a society like the old Jewish society built by, by Moses on this Manipuristic tenets. And everybody is there Manipuristic. And when you are Manipuristic, pride is your terrible trap. Pride is your biggest danger. And suddenly Jesus is coming and saying, let's be in the heart, let's be humble, there shall be no more pride. That's a bitter pill that's too much to swallow for anybody. And that is why His message is like almost impossible. The same thing was when the first Christian missionaries in the 1500s, they tried to preach Christianity in Japan. It was a mayhem. It was a complete fiasco. It was a complete disaster because you could not get the Japanese to be in Anahata. Simply. Full stop. They, whatever you tell them, they would take the fanaticism, they would take the devotion, but they will all do it in a Manipuristic. For them, to be a Christian was like to be samurai. You had to be the samurai of God. But Jesus doesn't say such thing. Jesus says you have to be the son of God. You have to be the lover of God. You have to be the humble of the humblest. You have to be the last of them. He is washing the feet of the apostles. And Peter even opposes. And he says, you are not going to wash my feet. This is too much. You know, you are my guru. You cannot wash my feet. You are God. You can't. And Jesus says, I am washing your feet or not at all. You know, it's kind of you can't. That simply means I need to show you this. The ultimate humiliation of Jesus actually is the one which happens on the cross. That Jesus being an avatar and being able to raise the dead from the graves, to stop the storms and to walk on water and to do whatever, at the same time He is nailed on a cross defenselessly. And moreover, the other people ruled by their arrogance because that's what they would have done if they would have been put on the cross. They say, if you are the Son of God, release yourself from the cross. Show us. Eh? You are Messiah? Okay, set yourself free. You say you can raise the dead? Let us see. Imagine what a temptation to be agonizing and tortured, to be almighty, to be omniscient, to look upon the people in front of you like some little ants crawling on the surface of a planet, and yet to have so much compassion and so much humility to be able to, to play dumb, to be able to play dumb in front of all of them just because you need to be humble all the way. To let some stinking Roman soldiers, some imbecile drunks to crucify you like a criminal when you are the master of the universe, when you could with a snap of your fingers spin the planet twice faster or whatever, you know? You could do anything and yet you let them do them to you and you even let them mock you and the general impression is, see, he cannot do it. He is a false prophet. Ha ha, ha ha. It's good you are dying up there on that cross. You false. It's like even your mission is betrayed. You know, I came to convince people uh, and now it's like I'm making a bummer. I'm giving them a flop and because of this they will believe less. What a humility. What an incredible meekness you must have 
to be able to go the full Monty in this way. It's kind of incredible. Nobody in history has actually gone as far as Jesus. In terms of humility, there is nothing which compares with Jesus to be God and to allow them to humiliate. There have been great uh, saints. Apollonius of Tiana, when he was brought in front of the Roman emperor for being a Gnostic Christian, he jeered at the Roman emperor and he said, you Roman emperor, mortal piece of flesh, you actually may have power over my body, but you have no power over my soul. So do your worst. And then he thought a little bit and that's where he demonstrated he was not Jesus, he was just another mortal, because then he couldn't go the full Monty. And then he updated his saying and he says, actually, if I think better, you don't even have power over my soul. And he snapped his fingers and disappeared. And they never caught him. They never knew what happened to Apollonius of Tiana. Basically, he showed him, you, you can't even grab me. You know, I'm such a magician. I have such magic powers that for me, you are nothing. You pretend you are an emperor. You are nobody. That's all. Jesus could have done the same. He had more power than Apollonius of Tiana. And yet, he didn't do it. That is the ultimate humility. That I am nothing, I am nobody. That is why Jesus preaches this. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In this, Jesus is telling a fundamental truth. One, the heart is superior to Manipura, and therefore it will always win. The heart seems to lose, but it actually wins. Like Christianity won the game through sacrifice and meekness. In history, it took over in time through meekness. Can you find meekness later? No. The Catholic Church and the others, they become powerful and big and crushing and manipuristic and institutions and squashing people. And that's Manipura. That church is not on Anahata anymore. On Anahata, there is the humbleness. I am the most stupid. I am the most weak. I am the worst sinner of them all. That means I can be very, very humble. I don't have to say anything bragging about me or anything. The truth of the heart always wins because Anahata is stronger than Manipura. But in daily life you can't see it. People can't see it and they always are tempted by Manipura because Manipura seems to be the quick win. Jesus says... Blessed be the weak, because they shall inherit the earth. It is Anahata that actually wins. And in this way, Jesus is also saying an amazing thing. If he says, the meek shall inherit the earth, he actually defines the future of the planet earth. The planet earth is a planet destined to be a planet of Anahata Chakra. It is a planet destined to be ruled by the heart. That is why the final goal of the evolution on this stage of history of this planet is to reach the heart. If we don't reach the heart, we don't reach the standard of Jesus and therefore we cannot inherit the earth. Blessed be the meek because they shall inherit the earth. Remember that if you don't become meek and humble, you cannot inherit the earth. You are not part of the new sky, the new heaven and the new earth that Jesus is predicting for coming for the new age. And therefore, 
Anahata in that way it is fundamental. Humility is such a value that that's why I stopped on it. That's why I want to comment. Humility is the one which guards you from falling into temptation. That means when the devil tempts Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, huh, you know who I am? You stupid devil. Huh? Huh? No. Jesus is humble and he says, I am a servant of God. You shall not tempt God. You shall not provoke God. You shall not. That means he is reacting not with pride, but with humility. In spite of the great job that he does, he is the most humble of them all. This is of a great meaning because remember that the one of you, man or woman, who is humble shall never fall into temptation, shall never be tempted by the devil to do what the devil did. The devil was not humble. That is why he became Luciferian and started thinking that he is smart and he can do whatever. The humility is the actual thing. And that is why the Christian mystics, they have laid the utter insistence on this humility. That whatever you do, you should consider yourself the last of men. I remember I saw an interview with that great monk who could, I told you a few days ago, that he could see on a photo that a man and a woman were not married. I've seen an interview with him taken on video, and he said, he said, I'm just a rotten sinner, you know. He said, why do you all come to see me? He, but, but they said, you have been in the forest and you did prayer. And he said, I've been in the forest and I've just been eating and drinking like a glutton and sleeping all day long. He said, what's the big deal that I was in the forest? He all the time minimized himself. He never accepted any prize that, oh, I, indeed, I lived nine years in the forest and then I did some serious practice. No, he was all the time dismissing. And he said, people said, what? I mean, nobody could believe you have been in the forest. <clears throat> you must have done a lot of prayer. And he said, no, no, I just ate and drank and slept like a glutton and like a lazy man. You know, I'm just a rotten old man carrying his sins around. He was all the time, all the time. And then people said, but if you are a sinner and a rotten, then what to say about us? And he said, oh, you are great people coming from town, learned people. And he said, I cannot measure up with you. I'm just an old man. And so on. He all, all the time. And people insisted, how is that that you are? You cannot be such a sinner after all. And so on. And he said, look here. If the Apostle Paul, who raised to the third heaven in his visions and in his prayer, and he says in one paragraph of his letters later in the New Testament, he says, Jesus Christ came on this world to save the sinners, out of which I am the first. He said, if the Apostle Paul, who was an enlightened being and raised to the third heaven, he says, out of the sinners of this world, whom Jesus came to save, I am the first and foremost. Then he said, what are we compared with that? He said, we are nothing. He said, we should really put our head down and realize with humbleness that that many people consider that an unhealthy view but actually when you do it from the heart it is so amazingly healthy it is so exalting it is so blissful to be nothing paramahamsa yogananda one of the yogic gurus of india who was not arrogant because that's one of the diseases of india unfortunately 
he says he speaks all the time with humility and he's just the child of God and he has these little childish naive things with him eating cakes all the time and being a bit of a glutton and so on and in one of his prayers he has the beautiful thing he says God give me the most humble place in your heart that means I don't ask to be the king of Shambhala I don't ask to be a great spirit. Uh, I don't ask. I don't ask to be anything. Give me the most humble place in your heart. That means all I want is to be humble. That's all. This is becoming bliss when you pray like this and you feel it. It like gives you goosebumps and it's complete bliss. You cry and you feel this humbleness as an amazing thing. It is pure bliss. That is why those who have never tried humbleness they should really try it because you don't know what you are losing. Pride is nothing. Pride is so hollow. It is such an empty thing and it is moreover the greatest danger that you encounter on the spiritual path. When I moved to India, I already told that to people. I was appalled because I expected that at least in India the so-called spiritual people should be humble. I hardly met one in a hundred of the so-called holy people of India who was actually humble. All the others, they knew better than everybody. They were holier than thou. They were all of them so arrogant. They had all the answers. They knew everything. They were telling you how to do the things. They already knew. It's, it's kind of, I was looking and couldn't believe, you know, this is what a spiritual person acts like. This is not from the heart. It simply has no humbleness. It has no humility. That means, take some historical examples. In the 20th century, Padre Pio, great Italian stigmatist with stigmata and ecstasy and prayer, and the Vatican got afraid because Padre Pio lived in Florence or wherever, in Venice, wherever he lived. And tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were flocking to see Padre Pio because Padre Pio was much more of a Christian than the Pope or the Vatican. The Vatican is just a bunch of buildings with a richly dressed guy who is called the Pope, but there is no spirituality there. And of course the people said, well, fuck Vatican, we want to see Pio because Padre Pio is the real thing. I mean, if that guy gives you a blessing or praise for you, that's a man who is with God. And therefore, they were moving the center of the Catholic Church to Padua or to Venice, where this guy was, instead of Rome. So all, all the cardinals and the popes, and they got completely pissed off that this Pio was taking the whole charisma of the church. He was kind of... And they put him under the most severe... They told him, Pio, you are getting arrogant because people come and visit you fast. Uh, do this, do this. They squashed him all the time with all kinds of things. And eventually he was forbidden to see the crowds. They gave him only 10 minutes per week where he could appear at a window from the monastery and wave to the crowds and give them a blessing. That means it's kind of what can a man do in 10 minutes per week? Nothing. He was like a puppet put there so that, and the church was manipulating him heavy duty, shamelessly and kind of completely to the bottom. And Padre Pio never said anything about this. He just stayed like this and did that for all his life. Simon the Stylite. Simon was a saint who is the father of the Stylites. The Stylites 
is a type of crazy Christian saints disappeared in the 4th century or 5th century. Simon is the first one who took the discipline of sitting on a, on a pillar. The stylites are the saints who live on a pillar. Basically, they take the most simple pillar is a tree, like they did it in Lebanon. They took, for example, cedar trees, very high and strong trees, and they would simply cut the branches of the tree. They would cut the top of the tree, and at a safe distance from the top where the trunk was thick enough to hold them, they would build a platform, usually one meter by one meter. That means that platform was not as big as this bed. It was like half of it. And on that platform, they would live for the rest of their lives. On top of a tree, 30 meters high, on top of a tree, that people had to give them food with a rope. They simply had to pull a basket for the food, and that food, of course, will be super modest. Rain, sunshine, wind, it doesn't matter. The stylite was there. He was living in the view of the world. He couldn't masturbate. He couldn't do anything. And if he was lazy and sitting and looking at his navel, people would see. That means those people dared to live in the public view. Everybody could see that Simon was praying 15 hours per day or he was praying 24-7 or something like this. That means there was a man, nothing to hide, you know. I live in public. I'm naked in public. Living, I'm living up on that pole. Everybody can see me 300 meters around. That's where I am, you know. In that way, you cannot say that, ah, that guy was going in his room and only God knows what shitty things he was doing in his room. He didn't have a room. He lived there 24-7 and he took a vow never to come down. He was to spend all his life there. And at some point, the power and the prayer and the miracles and the charisma was amazing. People were flocking to see the new miracle, to see you like, you have never seen anything like this, a crazy man living like a bird on top of a 30 meter pillar, day and night forever, it's kind of, you have to be superhuman to do such a thing, it's kind of how many people would be able to take such a vow and to live, it's superhuman really, it's beyond anything we know, and then there comes the bishop, and he climbs up on the stairs or whatever, they take him up there, and he says, Simon, what is this shit that you are doing here? And Simon says, Lord or Sir, or I'm not doing anything. I'm just praying for my sins, you know, and everything. And the bishop says, yes, but a lot of people are attracted and disturbed around. And I, we think that your ego is puffing up and everything, you know. You get a lot of exposure and a lot of attention here and it's not good for you. The guy says, but uh, Sir, or whatever... Uh, this is the message of God, you know, this is the vision which I have, this is the power which God gave me, this is what I do, I am staying here in prayer, and God has asked me to do this, I am, I am possessed by the Spirit of God to do this. And then the bishop says, no, it's not true, you are doing this out of demonic arrogance, so please come down and come to the monastery back, don't, don't play public games, this is pure exhibitionism. And then Simon says, okay, you want me to do this? I will do this. And he simply, I mean, he had a vow. He had been there. I mean, imagine what a willpower. Imagine what a Manipura. Imagine what a personality such a man should have. Uh, gigantic, you know? And yet the bishop who was probably an asshole, just a guy dressed up, you know? Not a man who could walk on water or anything. Just a man with a function. And he tells him, come down to the monastery because we don't believe in your sanctity and everything. 
And this guy is breaking his vow. He says, yes, if you tell me to come down, I will obey. And he wants to come down. And then the bishop stops him when he's making three steps down and he's climbing down. The bishop stops him and he says, stop. This was just a test because we, we needed to know if you are indeed with God or not. This was, We just wanted to see if you are arrogant or not. And he said, stay here. Now we understand that this is, that means if you are capable to humble yourself to this extent, then God is with you indeed. You are a man of God. This is how far it goes. I have seen, I remember from some Romanian monastery, there was a guy he at some point he tried to do a feat. Uh, he wanted to go alone in the wilderness. So one day, that is a very delicate process. If a monk nowadays in the Christian church, at least in the Orthodox Church of Romania, if they try to go in the wilderness to say, okay, I will do what Milarepa did or whatever, it's very difficult to get that. Your advisor, your confessor will not give you the permission, will say, no, you go, there are many demons waiting for you out there alone. You are not strong. They will need to be very, very sure that you are very powerful, very mature, very humble, very everything. Suddenly this guy... He goes. He doesn't ask for permission or anything, and he goes. Next morning, they found out that he packed his things, and obviously he ran in the forest. He leaves them a message that I left to the whatever, to some valley, to this valley, to the death valley, or whatever, to do meditation alone, to do prayer alone. And then after three months or something, he comes back. Thin sickly, you know, really miserable and so on. He comes back and he's like defeated and so on. And of course, everybody in the monastery starts jeering at him and saying, yeah, Walter, yeah, you tried to smart. Yeah, you are holy. Yeah, you tried to go to the mountains. And yeah, Walter, the idiot. Yeah, and so on. So it continued for the rest of his life. Everybody in the monastery jeered at him for the rest of his life because he had the arrogance to push himself and to say, haha, I'm more holy. The monastery is not good enough for me. It's not strong enough for me. I want to do something more ascetic. You guys are making me weak. Uh, the monastery is not doing enough practice. Let me go alone and do this kind of thing. Remember, for those of you who like to do retreats and so on, that even that can lead to a pride. There is a demonic pride in doing retreats and being strong. And you know, I am not one of those who does one hour and a half of yoga per day. I'm powerful. I do 10 hours and a half of yoga per day. That's also a demonic thing which goes against humility, against being humble. And therefore... And they jeered at him, and this guy became the typical example of a fiasco. The blown-up young man who thinks he is Milarepa, and he goes in the forest, and he comes with his tail behind his leg, between his legs after three months, and asks for forgiveness, and he is received back, but he will be like an underdog for the rest of his life, and so on. And huge was the surprise of everybody that when, his, when this guy died, only then they found out that this guy had a secret arrangement with the abbot and actually he had gone to that valley to meditate with permission and with blessing and both he and the abbot made a deal that they should never say it. So basically the guy accepted 
to be mocked and jeered at for the rest of his life for a mistake which he had never committed, just to exert his humility, that till the end of my life, all the stupid beginners and all these stupid lazy monks who just eat and sleep, they are making fun of me saying, ha, Walter, the arrogant, ha, remember Walter, three years ago when you're trying to uh, play uh, holy and so on, ha, ha, Walter, Walter, you know, and so on. And basically the one who was mocking was an asshole and a nothing, and this guy was the real thing, and he even did it on purpose, like I'm going to humble myself programmatically just to, because I want to live in humbleness. It goes as far as that and more far than that. And that is why I could give you many more examples. And if you'll read the fathers of the desert, you'll get appalled of what they did in terms of uh, humility. And that is why I'm telling you, spirituality without humility is really, really dangerous. In Indian spirituality, as well as in, in Tibetan spirituality, even more so in Chinese and Japanese spirituality, there appeared huge examples of arrogant people because all these are so Manipuristic. Not so much the Indians, but there is a lot of Manipura as well in India because of the fire and these things. And remember that this is the main doom of these forms of spirituality. Look at Shivananda, look at Yogananda, look at Ramakrishna. They are not at all arrogant. They are not at all vanitous. They are so, so, so humble, all of them. And therefore, that is the key. Without that, you cannot do it. Remember that in spirituality, he or she who is not humble risks one day to meet face to face with the devil and to be tempted ultimately to sell their soul for their pride. And that will not be as explicit as I'll tell you now. It will be implicit and concealed. And if you have too much arrogance, you will simply sell your soul because of your image, because of your self-image, because of your pride and vanity. Remember, there is nothing worse than pride and vanity. That is the ultimate doom. Therefore, Jesus, Jesus is going exactly on the opposite of it. And he says, in practice... The first thing to cultivate is humility. That, that is one of the most beautiful gifts that you can learn from the fathers of the desert and from the Philokalia and from the typical Christian mysticism. The Jews at the time of Jesus, they were arrogant and puffed up and vanitous. The Indians were sometimes, the Tibetans were sometimes, and in the Tibetan Buddhism there are many shitty, ugly things happening because all of these high lamas, they are highly arrogant, highly manipuristic, highly this and that, and not as nice as you would believe. It happened uh, in martial arts where easily it degenerated in violence, power games, who kicks the ass of who, and this kind of things. And it happened in many, many other religious environments. It happened perhaps less, least of all, uh, compared like uh, almost as much as in the Christian saints, in Sufism. The Sufi mystics, Rumi and some of the Sufis, they seem to have had the same thing. And some of the Indian gurus, Allah, Abhinavagupta and the Kashmirians, and Allah, Ramakrishna and Chaitanya and Shankaracharya and the real big ones, 
they seem to have this complete lack of ego, this complete humility, that, that means they don't brag, they don't boast, they are not vanitos, they are not puffed up, they manage to stay within decent limits of humility. Remember always that without humility, you are in a great danger, because doing yoga like crazy, one day you will become powerful. Even those of you who cannot believe today, believe me, if you do yoga many hours per day, one day you will become very powerful. And powerful is the most terrible temptation that you can ever have, because if you are powerful and you are not humble, God behave you. You are going to follow Lucifer, not God, if you are that. Therefore, humility is your complete guard against going the demonic ways. He or she who would like to be safe that I am never going to fall into diabolic paths should staunchly cultivate humility because humility is the sure guarantee of spirituality that you are not going to go the dark path, the path of evil. That is the huge value of it. And remember, if you look through this prism, you will see in the history of the world that people who are arrogant, they were fallen. That's one of the differences even in the Old Testament, if you try to make the difference between King David and King Solomon. In Christianity, at least I don't know, in the Jewish tradition, but the Christians treat King David as a prophet and as an enlightened being, and King Solomon as a fallen demonic one, because one of them managed to be humble till the end, and the other one became arrogant, and he thought he can make the rules himself, and he started puffing himself up. Two kings, father and son, one of them humble and therefore saved in the end, and the other one arrogant and having the powers of kings, and becoming dust, just losing himself failing miserably. That is why Jesus insists a lot on this and many times and his own life is the most perfect example of humility that you can find through all its implications. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Never forget that the earth is meant according to Jesus the avatar, the divine Jesus, is not just a dreamer. He's not just a big yogi who said, I have a dream. I want humanity to reach Anahata Chakra. Jesus is God coming on earth who says this planet is meant to be a planet of Anahata Chakra. There is no discussion about that. That's not just the view of an enthusiast. That is God himself considering. Therefore, if the meek will inherit the earth, this earth will be an earth of Anahata Chakra. And that is why if you want to integrate in the flow of the spiritual events as Jesus sees it and as Shambhala, as Shambhala contemplates it, no doubt, because there is no discrepancy between what God wants for this planet and what Shambhala plans for this planet, then automatically the next stage in the evolution of this planet is a collective consciousness on Anahata Chakra. It is a paradise-like place on Anahata Chakra. Fortunately, the color of this planet itself, as seen from the cosmos, is blue, which is nothing else but the color of the air, Tattva, 
Dvayu Tattva in Tantra and Yoga is blue, and the blue color of the earth says in as many words that this is meant to be the cradle of uh, humanity which should live predominantly in Anahata Chakra. The spirits to be born on this planet more and more have to be on Anahata Chakra, and that is why we can say that the planetary mission of this planet, it's like we say that every class has a purpose. That means if you go to learn mathematics, it has the purpose to teach you this and this skill. If you go to the chemistry class, it has the purpose to teach you this and this skill. What is the purpose of our life on this planet from this standpoint? It is to teach us Anahata. This planet is an Anahata Chakra school. It is meant to teach people to reach Anahata. Either in my previous life I have been a Jew or a Tibetan, or I have been a a fairy or a salamander or a gnome, and my chakras with which I came in this life are this and that, the final funneling is that this planet, this classroom, which is the planet, is, is having as purpose to give me a degree in Anahata. I have to reach my degree level in Anahata. That's the purpose of it, the way Jesus describes it. The blessed, the meek, because they will inherit the earth. This statement is fundamental. I could speak much more, but I try to make you understand there have been people who humbled themselves inconceivably for a whole lifetime, like hopelessly, forever, just because they wanted to keep themselves preserved from puffed up vanity. That guy who raised the child by telling him stand up, then immediately he ran in the desert because more precious than everything was that people should not come and worship him and tell him, wow, Baba, how big you are, how holy you are. That would have been the death of his humility. He couldn't have that. He preferred to change his home, to take an effort, to move instantaneously, to have to find another cave, to build another hut, to take a lot of pains, to run in some God-forgotten place, rather than stay and receive people's admiration. People's admiration sometimes is a terrible trap for those whose humility is not there. That is why my advice is meditate on the heart and meditate on humility all the time. May you be the last, as they say, because Jesus says, he who is the last shall be the first. And those who think that they are first, they are actually the last. That's the, act, the actual thing of it. Look at the beauty of it. Ramakrishna was humble. Sarada Devi, she was humble. Sarada Devi, the enlightened woman, the goddess of India, the wife of Ramakrishna, all her life she lived like a humble, small Indian woman. She just cooked food for everybody. And everybody, I mean, you know how they treat women in India. Sarada Devi just accepted to be small, you know. I am the wife of Ramakrishna, I am enlightened, what am I cooking today for you? You know, it's kind of the best thing, to be humble and so on. This guy, this monk, just to show you how it works, this guy who, who was nine years in the forest and who could see on photos miraculous things and so on, example, at some point in the monastery where he lived, 
he was just a shepherd. He was not even a full monk. He was not ordained fully. He, they didn't give him the full vows because they said this boy is just a stupid shepherd. He cannot read Greek or Latin or he cannot, we are not going to make him a priest. He is a dumb shepherd boy and so on. And uh, he was going every day with a sheep. And kind of, I, uh, I don't know if you know, but I know exactly how in the monasteries, how they will treat this kind. He was treated like shit, like the last citizen of them. He should eat last with the leftovers. He was supposed to get up first and do all the menial jobs for everybody. He was, he was the last, he was the least of the citizens of the monastery. He was kind of treated like shit. The abbot dies, he's on his deathbed. And everybody is desperate because the abbot was a very wise, very powerful spiritual person. And everybody says, wow, you are leaving us. We cannot find an abbot like you. Who shall lead the destinies of the monastery? Who shall be the spiritual guide of this monastery? Who shall be our confessor and our experienced? You are so experienced in the fight with the demons and in the spiritual game. Where will we ever find one like you? And the old man being on his deathbed, he tells them, well, actually, if you really want to listen to me, I can recommend you somebody. But I know that you will not listen to me. And everybody said, what? You give us an advice and we not listening to it? You must be crazy. You know, it's kind of whatever you say, we're going to do. Really, he says, whatever I say, will you do? Yes, yes, they swear, they promise, whatever you say, it is holy for us. We are, then he says, make as an abbot, Cleopa, the guy from the sheep. Everybody is completely, completely dead. And one of them even mumbled, the old man went bazako, the old man went gaga, you know, he's dying and he lost it, you know, he is raving, he's already behind, uh, beyond reason and so on. And then because they promised and they swore and this guy said, let me see you do that now. They took everything, all the paraphernalia and went up to the sheep place. It was not even in the monastery. The sheep were kept separately somewhere. They went to that guy. This guy, he says, I saw them coming up the hill with all the flags and everything. I thought they were going to make some prayer for the rain because there was a drought or something like this. And then they come suddenly... And they say, you have to be the abbot of the monastery. And the guy says, but I'm not even a monk. I'm just a shepherd boy, you know. They say, yeah, we know, but that's what the abbot ordered, you know. The abbot asked us to do this. And the guy says, but I'm just a st I don't have any experience. I'm not even a monk. I didn't even live in the monastery. I lived up here with the sheep. What do I know about monasteries? And he says, please, only you will have to lead the monastery. I cannot do this. I am just a dumb boy from the sheep and so on. They say, yeah, yeah, don't worry. We'll support you. We'll be with you. He's very humble. He, tell he tells them, look, if you don't support me, I will not be able to lead this monastery. Only with your support, because you are experienced. You are older than I am. And eventually they agree. They say, yeah, yeah, you will be like a pro forma abbot. Then we'll put you, because the old man asks, and we have so much love and respect for him, we'll put you there. And okay, we'll help you as much as possible. It's true, you don't know about uh, administering the money of the monastery. You don't know about a lot of things. We'll help you. We'll give you a lot of advice and we'll help you run the monastery and so on. And then they decide and they make the service and they anoint him as a, pre as a monk, as a priest. And then they make him abbot of the monastery. 
and then he's supposed to keep his first speech as enthronement. And when he started speaking, he spoke two hours and a half only from Philokalia and from everything. This guy was dynamite of learning. This boy from the sheep, he was borrowing secretly books from the library of another monastery over the hill, and he could read in Greek and Latin and everything, and he had read Philokalia and the patristics and everything, and he knew them by heart. He was completely learned, and he kept the speech for two hours. There was nobody in the monastery who knew that kind of thing. And then they realized that the abbot was right, that this young man was the real hope, because he had been humble. For years, they had treated him like shit, and nobody had even had a clue that this young boy was more smart and more spiritual than all of them. He always played dumb. I am just Cleopa from the sheep, you know? That's all that I am. Kick me in the ass. You know, I'm stupid. I'm nothing, and so on. That is why, remember, there is an amazing beauty in humility. And sometimes your ego feels like dying. What? For the whole life I shall be nobody. For the whole life. That's the danger. That's why Jesus says, Who has the power to lose their life for me? For my sake? For the message which I bring? Can you waste your life and be nobody? He who can waste his life for me has saved it. And he who wants to save his life has lost it. Because people want to save their life by promoting their ego. And the ego has only one end. Darkness and death. While Jesus says, promote your jivatman, live in the heart and be humble and you save your life. Then indeed you reach the purpose of life. That is why, remember, never forget the amazing beauty of humility. Humbleness or humility, meekness, is one of the ultimate spiritual values. If Jesus, the King of the universe, put himself on a cross and accepted all the idiots and the jerks to mock him for it, and he didn't move a finger and he surrendered to God, then what shall we do who are not the kings of the universe in the way Jesus was? Therefore, there is always a greater example in humility, and that is why we can only try to imitate the brilliant example in humility, which first of all, Jesus gives. Jesus, by his humility, has conquered the universe. Don't forget this ever, that many people have tried to conquer the universe, and they died in misery, and Jesus is the man who humiliated himself to the bone and won everything. He earned everything through that. That is indeed the destiny of a Messiah. That is a Messiah. That is the Greek concept of a Christ, the anointed one of God, the one who is empowered by God, the one who is the Spirit of God. I will not say more. It is enough for tonight. I will, of course take your questions, we can discuss a little bit about things. Then next week on Tuesday, I'm making a break. I'm not doing this lecture so that we can have some other themes and your questions about yoga and about the million other things that we discuss about in yoga. If anybody again wants to propose some special theme for those intermediary lectures, such as a bigger lecture on a specific subject, 
don't forget to tell me in advance or at least if you catch me you tell me at 9 o'clock at 9.30 when we start the lecture so we have time to go into it if not we can have beautiful meetings with questions and answers from these lectures and others as well sometimes when your questions are very inspired and very full of aspiration the grace comes through and therefore we get wonderful lectures because of your aspiration and because of the grace and therefore we can have as well that and on Thursday I'm continuing again with one more lecture on this theme so Tuesday a non-Jesus theme but of course if you have questions about Jesus and his message I will answer but I will not continue reading paragraph by paragraph not on Tuesday and Thursday I will do exactly that let us see if you have any questions, any issues, if you'd like to find out more about something, talking at this level, after which we'll part for tonight. It's way after midnight already. Because he accepted a terrible ordeal that I'm going to try to explain, in which he suffered without resorting to any paranormal power or to any yogic ability. Therefore, he simply suffered as a normal human being would. And that would be like, you know, like I could fly, but I choose not to. And then I'm kind of taking the full impact of everything, of everything. That means, theoretically, if he was such a great yogi, he could focus in his Ajna Chakra and not feel the pain anymore. But he didn't do that. That is exactly the point. That is another form of humiliation, you know, like, I could, but I'm not. I'm just becoming an ordinary Tom, Dick and Harry. I had a question about, um, while well, I was in that film we saw a few weeks ago at the Last Supper when he says um, the only way to the Father is through me or something like that. Now, I don't know, it sort of sounds like Christianity is the only valid path or something. No, he doesn't say Christianity. He says the only way is through me. But he represents a cosmic principle. He is not, he is not an institution. There was no institution. He does not belong to it. He doesn't say only through the institution which my disciples will build, you can reach to me. He says, I am the Son of God and therefore through that you can reach to the Father. But that is a metaphysical principle of the universe and everybody can reach it, either they are Buddhist or Hindus or whatever. He doesn't. He actually, the, what he says is true but it has to be interpreted metaphysically, not as a person or as an institution, because he doesn't mean that at all. The warning then about um, practicing a lot and involving a spiritual ego, how can that be avoided? I mean, to still have aspiration to want to... to by humility, by never bragging too much about what you do and how good you are and how holy you are, and how much merit you have, and so on. Never 
never tell. Let only one or two persons know about that in your life. You know, like your girlfriend will automatically know, your yoga teacher will know, your best friend will know, but not many other people will know of what you actually do. You don't need to boast in front of everybody, look, I'm doing three hours of yoga every day. Let people believe you are dumb. Just don't brag at all. Let people believe Michael is sitting here and is just drinking tea all day long and not doing anything. It's okay. Let them believe like this. It's good for your spirit. It's good for your ego that people believe you are stupid. It's very good. Yeah, I'm also wondering, why are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> if, I look at, if I look at it objectively, then it, 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 it seems like I'm, I'm like chasing highs. I'm trying to get a spiritual high now, and I can see that that's, that's flawed. And it would be much more uh, uh, productive to, to, to be really devoted to... There is no why. You are trying to rationalize something which has no why. If there is a why, you are not on the path anymore, anyhow. Jesus says it somewhere very clearly and we'll reach to that. There are, he says there are people who do things because of fear, fear of God, and they are the slaves of God because only the slave is ruled by fear. You whip him to get him to work. There are people who do things because they expect rewards from God, and those are the merchants of God. They want to buy God. I'm doing two hours of meditation. You give me samadhi. You know? Those are the merchants of God. And there are people who are the sons of God. And they do it because of love. That's where he wants you to be. You don't do it because of anything. There is nothing you don't want. You want to get from God. You are neither afraid of God. Nor you want anything to buy from God. You do it. Because you love God and it's the only way to live. It's the only thing to do. It's beautiful to live like that. And if God is like that, then you are like that. It's as simple as that. Therefore, if you try to find the why of it, you wander in the wrong path, in, on, in the wrong land. There is no why. You do it because it's aspiration. You have Ishvara Pranidana and that's, that's your gift. So because you have Ishvara Pranidana and you know it's the right thing to do in this life, do it. There's no need to argue on it. Issue of meekness where he says, Blessed are the meek. And the fourth of them says bliss